everyone. You're listening to The Katie Halper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Halper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with all of you. And we have an amazing show for you. As you guys all probably know, so many of you are already here because you know that we are having on Brother Cornell West. I'm so excited to be joined by him. He is one of the nation's most recognized and celebrated public intellectuals. He's a professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary. He was at Princeton and Harvard before then. And he was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. And he's so much more. Without any further ado, Dr. Cornell West. Oh, what a blessing for me. We've had many conversations and I'm always full of joy to be able to be in conversation with you. And I send my best to your precious mother, who I met there with Roger Waters. Waters, my dear brother, and yourself and so many others, Lee and Ryan and the others for Julian Assange. That yeah, was, that was great. We had it. Oh, there brother was Randy. Night. Randy was the... Randy, uh, right. Randy Credico, one of his nights for Assange. And we had a great night and Brother Cornell spoke and Margaret Kimberly was there too. Margaret and, was there. And brought, from Black Agenda Report, Roger Waters was there and he played at the piano. It was really moving. And then, of course, Dr. West spoke and was very rousing. And I did some stand-up, so that was a great night. And my mom was there, so you guys met there. You did some marvelous stand-up. And Brother Roger sat there and played the piano almost with his eyes closed. It was beautiful. It was straight from his heart, straight from his soul. And he's always been a freedom fighter and a a serious, serious uh, justice seeker. Yeah, and of course, because of that, always smeared. Yeah, isn't that the truth, though? But he's been given the same show all these years, and then all of a sudden now they come at him tooth and nail, though, huh? It's wrong. No, no, he's, he's got to stand tall, but he's got to be an artist, too. An artist always has to have the right to express themselves creatively. Yeah, and you, uh, like Roger Waters, have been also smeared for the crime of defending Palestinian human rights. So that's something that you're very familiar with as well. Oh, oh absolutely. We, we defend the rights of any oppressed people, no matter where they are, what color, what gender, what sexual orientation. And it's sad that we can't have a substantive in serious discussion about the uh, Palestinian suffering and, and resilience. You know what I mean? That's part of the problem of the Democratic Party. You just got people who are scared, intimidated, and don't want to tell the truth about the suffering there. But uh, we will never, ever sell any oppressed people down the river. We will never, ever sell our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters down the river. I remember watching you at the Democratic platform meetings and you gave a you spoke at the mic and you said it's time to free Palestine. And there was a lot of applause. It was kind of a watershed moment to hear the issue of free Palestine even debated at a Democratic platform meeting. No, no. We had some wonderful uh, cacophony of voices there, though. And appreciate your voice. You've always been strong on this issue as well. Yeah. I salute you, my dear sister. Yeah, I have the luxury of being called a self-loathing Jew instead of an anti-Semite. Good God Almighty. Lord, Lord, Lord. No, you stand for truth, justice, and preserve your integrity and embrace all people equally and keep on moving. Thank you. That's so nice. That means so much coming from you, really. I wanted to ask you, of course, about your presidential run. There's some exciting news, I believe. 
So last week, Chris Hedges, friend of the show, Chris Hedges, said during an event for Worker Strike Back, which was organized by Kshama Sawant, he said that he wanted you to run as a Green Party candidate. And you, of course, when you announced you were with the movement for the People's Party, the MPP, do you have an update about this? Oh, yes. No, that, that process is very much in movement, and uh, I look forward to it. You know, I'll always have gratitude for the tremendous uh, work of the volunteers of the People's Party and so forth. Uh, but there was so much going on in, internally, and, and therefore we had to be able to keep the focus where it belongs. And so we're, we're still, I am still deeply committed to a broad coalitional sensibility and a united front. And so I invite variety of different organizations, and that includes the People's Party, but I'm, I'm certainly moving in the, not just forward, but want, look forward to being a part of the nomination process of the Green Party. And I look forward to being able to already be in very rich conversation with my dear brother uh, Barack and my dear sister Stein, sister Jill and brother Ajambo, who I have uh, great love and respect for. So that, that's true. That, that is new. And we, which means when it comes to infrastructure and institution, it's much broader and deeper. Access to the ballot, much broader. But in the end, as you know, this, you know, any candidacy to run the empire in order to dismantle the empire has to be part of a movement. So it's really a moment in a much larger movement, domestic as well as international, to keep the focus on precious poor and precious working people wherever they are. So it's going to be an MPP and Green Party run? No, it would be it would be Green Party being the major having the major aegis. Okay. And then an openness to a variety of other parties, which is in, including, of course, People's Party, but a whole host of other organizations as well. So in this sense, it's going to be under the authority of the Green Party that has its nomination process. So I wouldn't be candidate until I go through that process. But uh, uh, but what we're doing is we're keeping the focus on what the campaign keeps the focus on, which is the, the priceless and priceless poor and working people here and abroad. And what made you decide to shift from the MPP to the Greens? And why didn't you run with the Greens originally? Well, one, you know, his Brother Nick and the others were, were kind enough to extend the invitation to me. And I still give them credit for that. We had a magnificent launching and so on. But then you had all of the baggage carried and the challenge of execution institutionally and so on. And uh, when, I, when I did hear, mediated through my dear brother Chris Hedges, uh, from certain individuals in the Green Party who, who had their own in, invitation for the nomination, I said, well, if in fact there's a good chance that I'll be able to have much broader infrastructure, institutional capacity, and make sure that there's no distractions in terms of uh, 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 any kinds of you know, struggles or tensions or, or various kinds of stigmas associated with parties and persons, uh, that it's very important that I'm able to keep the focus where it belongs. And also you have ballot access, right, as a Green? Oh, yes. You're starting off with almost 20, and then you can have another 21 in a matter of a few months. Uh, where we were starting with, you know, just one or two. So I, again, I, you know, I want to extend my deep gratitude to the brothers and sisters in the, in the People's Party. I mean, they they they're the ones who were the catalysts in this regard. But now I'm 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 off and running with 
very few distractions and keeping the focus where it belongs. Were you ever considering running as a Democrat, kind of an outsider within the party? And if if not, what were your considerations when you decided? No, I could not ever personally run for a candidate in the Democratic Party. I could support my dear, dear brother Bernie. And, you know, I love that brother forever. Uh, but that's his choice. I would support, you know, Nina and, and others in the Democratic Party. But no, 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 that's like asking a jazz man to, playing the military band. I got to bring my flat notes. I got to bring my freedom. I got to bring my improvisation. I, I, I need some swing in the band. And uh, it's just not going to work for me to bring my saxophone and have to just play those militaristic chords over and over and over again. The Democratic Party is just too tight, dominated by the corporate wing. I don't think the progressive wing will ever, ever be hegemonic. They're never going to be allowed to win. They the window dressing of a corporate party for the most part. And, I, we, you know, you and I know there's some decent people uh, in the Democratic Party, and God bless them and be with them, but they're never going to be able to go too far. And we saw that with Brother Bernie. He was just treated so unjustly, so wrongly, and uh, just I just hated the fact that he was treated that way. He's just such a uh, decent brother in so many ways. But he decides now, you know, he's going with Biden, he's going with the Democratic Party. We still got his heart in many ways, tied to working class people. We love that about it. But we have deep disagreements in terms of the capacity now of the two-party system to actually speak to the needs of poor and working people, let alone the militarism the Democratic Party is tied to with the uh, various adventurous activities abroad. I mean, look at that debt ceiling agreement. Isn't that something? Pull back from the poor and expand military. Right, which was hailed as a victory. Exactly. You can make a deal with Manchin for the pipes with ecological collapse taking place, working class and poor communities being devastated. And yet you can't make a deal with him on the filibuster to make sure voting rights are reinforced for black voters and others. I mean, it, it just shows that Brother Joe Biden, you know, he's just he's just so tied to uh, the corporate power. He's just so tied to the wealthy elites that it's an afterthought when it comes to poor and working people. It's a sad thing. I'm going to ask you more about your run, but I'm curious, backing up a little bit, you were a supporter of Barack Obama and, of course, at that time, his running mate, Joe Biden, and then you became a critic of Barack Obama. So what changed? Was it seeing what he did or did your own politics change or was it a combination well, to tell you the truth, I've, I've tried to have a consistency since we shut down the high school system in 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot down like a dog and Bobby Hutton was shot down two days later by the Oakland police. And that was always how do you keep alive the struggle for poor and working people. So when Barack Obama called me up and uh, he gave a speech, you know, talking about the uh, uh, he believes America is a magical place. And I went on TV and said that uh, this brother's going to have a Christopher Columbus experience and discovers nothing magical about America. That, in fact, there's people here, there's suffering people, there's structures of domination here. So he called me up. We had a long talk. And I told him, I said, look, I'm trying to keep alive the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer, Martin King, Rabbi Heschel, Edward Zaid, Chief Joseph, Muriel Rukeyser. We can go on and on. Those are the ones that inform me, you know. Luisa Marino, one of the greatest freedom fighters, Latina sister who was deported from California, went to Guatemala, the United States, 
overthrew a democratic regime in Guatemala. Then she had to go all the way to Brazil. Well, from that tradition, I had told Barack, I said, I will be your critical supporter. I'll do all I can to push you across the line. And when you win, I will break dance for about 10 minutes and be your major critic. And I was true to my word. And he knew I said that. And I said it twice because I did it twice. Why? Because I wanted to make sure he pushed aside the right winger. But I just felt, and I but thoroughly confirmed, too close to Wall Street, bails out Wall Street rather than homeowners. Expansion of the surveillance state. War crimes with drones being dropped on precious brothers and sisters in Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, and so forth. No talk about mass incarceration at all. No talk about poverty. Brother Tabitha Smiley and I went on two poverty tours and got, you know, he tried to crush us and push us over the edge and so forth. How can you be critical of the president? He's talking about the middle class. That's the best he can do because of the constraints. No, no, we got to be free. You start with the 40% of black children in poverty. You start with the 29% of with all children in poverty. You start with poor people no matter what age and then move to working people, support the trade unions, living wages and so forth. You protect the precious trans, precious gays and lesbians and so forth. Took him a while to even do that. Maybe Biden was ahead of him on that issue. We, you know, we give Brother Joe credit in that sense. So that from the very beginning, I tried to be consistent. And that's why, again, I've always felt that, uh, unfortunately, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party is the wing. And there'll never be a way of speaking to the issues of militarism abroad or poverty and working people at home and substantive support of trade unions. We're going to see that this summer. We already saw with Biden with the railroad strike. But we're going to see it this summer with UPS. We're going to see it this summer with the Teamsters as, as they bring serious power and pressure to bear on the bosses. And the Democratic Party is uh, is just found wanting in that regard. And we, you know, the neo-fascism of the Republicans, we just have no expectations there. They're very dangerous indeed, but you never defeat fascism with milquetoast neoliberal centrism. Never. You got to get at the roots. You need vision. You need passion. You need people on the move. You need movements to push back fascism. You can never ever have caretaker neoliberal governments saying we are pushing back fascism. No, fascism is on the move. It's just a matter of time. You have to have an alternative vision. That's why I'm going straight into Trump country. I want to talk to those vanilla brothers and sisters. I want to tell them, I know you're hurting. I identify with that need to overcome that pain. I know you're not being treated justly by the system. I understand that. Now let's not scapegoat the most vulnerable. Let's confront the most powerful together. And that's, again, you know, that's, that's, that's just what Martin King was talking about. That's what all of the great figures concerned about bringing people together in terms of solidarity against the powers that be. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that would always frustrate me during the 2016 and 2020 when people would compare Trump and Bernie and say they're the opposite sides of the same coin because they were both speaking to people's pain. But one of them was saying, I know you're hurting, blame Mexicans and Muslims. And the other one was saying, I know you're hurting, don't blame Mexicans and Muslims, blame the people who are actually responsible for your hurting. That's exactly right. And then the right wing populism ends up reinforcing the militarism, reinforcing corporate power, reinforcing predatory capitalism, 
processes that are unregulated because Trump and others are as tied to those as anybody else. But they're out there speaking to that pain. And it's sad that the Democratic Party is sad that Brother Biden and the others don't take that pain and suffering seriously. They're just so tied into the military industrial complex. They're tied into the war profiteers and they're tied into Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It's just, uh, it is what it is. We have to call it for what it is, tell the truth and keep organizing and working alongside the folk who are being shafted. Right. And there has to be a multiracial coalition. It's got to be solidarity, but it has to have a moral and a spiritual content to it. You know what I mean? That's one of the things, you know, we've always talked about before, you know, brothers and sisters come up to me, but, oh, Beth West, I want to be your white ally. I said, white ally? I thought you wanted to be a human being with integrity, courage, and honesty who wants to be part of a struggle for justice. It's not a crap of being an ally. That's like saying Bill Evans being a white pianist and Miles Davis' quartet is an ally. He ain't no ally. He's in the goddamn band. Oh, now we'll have the white ally play his solo. Now, Bill, you play Coltrane, just finished. I mean... What are you talking about? Sly Stone. He got the white brother playing the drum. Do you think he's an ally in Sly Stone's band? No, he's in the motherfucking band. Our movement is like a band. And then people come together. It's like our head on the piano with Dizzy Gillespie. He's a white brother. You know, Dick Hyman. I mean, they're they in the band, y'all. And we have to have that sense of being in it together. You know what I mean? Crucial. Yeah, that's important, I think. And... I mean, it, there's a moral imperative and a spiritual imperative, but it's also just for people who don't even care about that. It's a numbers game also. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's very true. But the thing is, is that what's wonderful, I think, about the moral and the spiritual imperative is you're going to do it no matter what the numbers say anyway. Right. You see what I mean? So that's what kind of keeps you going. But you're absolutely right. The fact that the demographics are shifting, too makes a difference. Yeah. But in the end, it's just because this is the kind of human being I want to choose to be between womb and tomb. Right. We just need, it needs to be a big enough movement that we can't really afford to not have everyone be part of it. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And so how have you had success? Have you had success? I'm assuming yes, because you're such a great speaker, but how are you able to reach people? Have you been able to convert people who were, let's say, seduced by Trumpism? Like, have you been able to reach people and speak in their language in a way that got them to shift how they see the world? Well, it's a beautiful thing. I was just at a restaurant with my beloved wife, Anahita, and uh, he had a brother come up to me and say, uh, as he's handing the food, I'm with you, Mr. President. Voted for Trump last time. I'm with you now. I think you're honest. I think you're so-and-so. Now, we didn't go into the whole analysis of Antonio Gramsci and so forth and so on. No, no. But it was just that that sense of people being open, people being willing to listen, concerned about those who are including them and speaking to their needs. Because they know I won't for a moment put up with any kind of xenophobia. They're going to trash our precious trans. They're going to trash precious gays and lesbians. They're going to trash Arabs, Jews, Muslims, immigrants. They're going to trash black folk, indigenous folk. No, I don't have a minute for that. But if we're talking about coming together and confront the corporate elites, confront corporate power, and how politicians are so tied to those corporate powers, that's 
where we're headed. And, and we had talked a little bit about that with, with the brother who was handing me and just telling him whether he'd been treated with dignity on the job and any help I could be for their unionizing and so forth and so on. That's the kind of spirit I think we need. And that can become more and more contagious, though. And I've been very blessed to have access to wonderful podcasts like yourself. I just did Margaret Kimberly was just talking about Sister Mark, just did Tim Black, I just did uh, uh, Sister Savvy. But also Jake Tapper had me on last week, you know what I mean? And, and Fox will probably have an openness. I'll go wherever I can with the same sensibility, same temperament, same personality, but most importantly, the same moral and spiritual core, putting poor and working people at the center of things. So one of the disadvantages, obviously, I mean, I see the obvious advantage of running not in the Democratic Party, but one of the the downsides is that you don't have access to a debate stage. So how important do you think that is? Are there any ways to get around that? And if not, how can you get through both the media blackout and also the, the debate blackout, I guess? Well, I think these days, you know, with social media, well, you can reach millions and millions of people outside of corporate media. I mean, you know, I, I declared with Brother Russell, Russell Brand, that thing got out all around. You know what I mean? So that yourself and then there's, you know, just the legendary sister Amy herself, who's already, you know, had me on and so on. Amy Goodman, yeah. But there's so many, thank God, there's been a certain kind of decentralizing in the media so that yourself and the others are really out there. You got the subscribers, you got far, far beyond the subscribers, the hearers and so on. And so there is a sense in which those channels on TV no longer are as hegemonic. If I can gain access, fine. But but thank God there's been so many others who are open. And I'm doing six or seven a day at a minimum. Wow. Oh, yes. On the move. You know, jazz man in politics got to hit it. Stay on the move. Blues man in the electoral world, you got to hit it. Stay on the move. And if you were president, what would be some of the things that you would enact in terms of policy? Well, I would begin with using the bully pulpit and say that the Gilded Age is over, that organized greed and institutionalized hatred and routinized indifference toward the plight of the vulnerable is over, that the American imperial sway around the globe acting as if it has no accountability is over. So that's at the level of vision. Then I would say, now, given all the resources that we have, what is it, 1.5 trillion going to military in addition to State Department, in addition to Homeland Security, uh, slices and what have you, major cuts for redistribution downward. Taxes, of course, very difficult to ever execute because the well-to-do have very clever lawyers that have various tax loopholes and tax evasion strategies and so forth, but taxes would have to go up in a significant way. And people would feel as if, for the first time in a long, long time in American history, that poor and working people would be integral at the center of policy. I told my beloved wife, I said, when I win, I don't even want to go into the White House until everybody has a house. Just to send a sign. So you see all these precious homeless folk out here? We're going to get them a place before we move in. Wow, what's going on? That's just theatrical. That's just performance. Well, no, it's a little more than that. 
it's a reshaping of the priorities. And you remember, that's what Martin King called for, a revolution in priorities that goes toward a revolution in actuality. And revolution is always what? The sharing of power, the sharing of resources, the sharing of dignity from the bottom up. Those Franz Fanon call the wretched of the earth. We would say the precious wretched of the earth. And that same message would be heard in Latin America. It would be heard in Africa. It would be heard in the Middle East and so forth. So it would be a very, very different sensibility in regard to the Ukraine. You see, I would be the first to say the United States reneged on its promise to not expand NATO. We promised Gorbachev and others we wouldn't move one inch. We were not true to our treaties. It looks like the treaties we have with indigenous peoples. We were not true to our treaties. I want to reintroduce America and the world to the best of America. What is the best of America? The struggle for foreign working people's rights and dignity of women and people's color and, and others. But it's a moral and spiritual thing. It's not tribal. It's not going to be no neoliberal identity politics making the empire more colorful and making the class hierarchy more colorful and the professional managerial class still having too much contempt and condescension toward poor and working people, you see. So the first thing would be setting that new framework, that new lens through which we're looking at the world and letting folk know that the Gilded Age is over. The people's age is beginning. It's funny. You reminded me when you said that you wouldn't move into the White House until homeless people had houses. It reminds me I think it was Tupac Shakur said this when he was much younger. He said, how can there be homeless people when, you know, there's room in the White House for them? Ooh, I didn't know that. What, what song is that? You remember? No, it was like an interview. He was young. Oh, he talked about interview. it was when Ronald Reagan was president. So he was very young. You know, I was blessed to have Tupac in my class. Really? Yes, indeed. The House of Lord Pentecostal Church, 415 Atlantic Avenue with Reverend Herbert Daltrey, who was the founder of the National Black United Front. You might remember him. And we used to have Timbuktu Learning Center every Wednesday with Charles Barron and Inez and so forth. And I would speak there regularly. I, mean, I was part of the faculty there. And a Finney, who was one of the great freedom fighters, member of the Black Panther Party and so forth, who was the mother of Tupac. She was a member of the church. And she would bring little Tupac. And he's sitting there on the front row. I can still see his beautiful eyes. A young brother. Young brother, who would have known he'd be the giant and the genius that he ended up being? But then, of course, such a short life, but such a long impact. He's just, uh, we don't have a language to describe his, his genius and his personality. But it's fascinating you would mention that, though. Absolutely. I'll find the clip and I'll send it. I think I saw in a documentary about him. Wow. Yeah. You saw Dear Mama on uh, Netflix? No, I have to see it. Is it yeah, good? all five. Episodes. Ooh. I have to watch it. This is from years ago. Oh, okay. But Phantom Espanta, who helps with the show, clips the show, keeps telling me to watch it. So I'll watch it. Yeah, Finney. She, she's like Asada Shakur. I mean, good God. See, one of the things I would do as president is pardon Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, Mumia Abu-Jamal and Atrat Brown and so many other political prisoners. Leonard Peltier. Brother Leonard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just so many folk who are there, who are innocent. I mean, you expose the war crimes of an empire and you end up incarcerated. And the folks who commit the war crimes walk around sipping tea. 
it's just, it's not right. It's just not right. What radicalized you? What politicized you? Were you raised by politicized parents? What was your journey to becoming the person you are today? Well, mom and dad, Cliff, Cliff and, and Irene West, they were just such magnificent human beings in terms of love, care, and integrity. Uh, they took me to hit Martin King when I was 10, and he had unbelievable impact on me. But I wouldn't say they were political. They were just some decent persons trying to make sure that their children loved others, treated others right. So the West family and Shiloh Baptist Church went hand in hand. Reverend Willie P. Cook, Deacon Hinton, and the others. Now, the Black Panther Party happened to be right down the street because I'm on the chocolate side of town. And so in many ways, it was the Black Panther Party. It was Emory Douglas. It was uh, it was Hewing Newton and Bobby Seale and Bobby Hutton and, and some of Erica Huggins and the others uh, who provided at least an understanding of the history of oppressed people, not just here, but around the world, see. But being a jazz man, too, you know, when he came to the Soviet Union, oh, he didn't treat the Jewish brothers and sisters right. I can't hold my voice back. He didn't treat the peasants right. I can't hold my voice back. Too much repression. I can't hold my voice back. Oh, but we're supporting Mandela. I like that. So I can come together and you struggle against apartheid in South Africa, the Soviet Union, but I have to be critical of your structures of repression and domination at home, you see. And so uh, uh, I never, I mean, I never joined the party because he was so secular and atheistic. And I've always been a Jesus loving free black man, you see. So we worked so closely together, breakfast program, prison program. Even when I was in college at Harvard, I part of the prison program, a breakfast program at Jamaica Plains and the prison program at Norfolk State Prison where Malcolm was. Uh, uh, and I've always viewed that as tremendously formative for me. So in that sense, you can see the combination of West family, Shiloh Baptist Church, black community. Now, of course, I ain't got to the nightclubs yet because, you know, the music has always been crucial. It's Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, and Donnie Hathaway and uh, and all the other great ones. So that uh, that's a part and parcel of who I am and in regard to your own artistry. I got a lot of Richard Pryor and Moms Mabley and Dick Gregory in me. I really do. And they are free human beings that could laugh at themselves and laugh with others, not just putting others down. You know what I mean? Punching up, not down. And that's so crucial. I mean, you know, a sense of the comic and, and humor is so fundamental to our humanity. And I've always viewed that as a, a gift that I received in growing up to be grounded in the, in that tradition of those towering artists. And we can talk about Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. Is that his name, Brother George? Yeah. Junior, that he was. Yeah, George. And the other, absolutely. Do you have a running mate picked out yet? No, 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 not at all. Well, I offered I offered Bernie, I offered to be his running mate, so I'll make the same offer to you. Don't tell <laughs> anyone else, though. I don't want, I don't want other people to think... Uh, I love it. it. I love it. I love it. Indeed, indeed. But we shall be in rich dialogue with you and your precious mother and your comrades and others because we are in this together, Sister Katie. I think I talked about this in the stand-up I did that night, but my mom has been an activist for a while. She 
one of her boyfriend, ex-boyfriends, who's still a good friend, is Dennis Mora, who was from the Fort Hood Three, the three men who refused to participate in that unjust and immoral war and went to jail for three years for not going to Vietnam. Right. And then before that, she dated Marion Barry, who she met at a core meeting. You mentioned that to me. And see, in those days, Marion Barry was a courageous and visionary freedom fight. This is with SNCC. Yeah, right. Back to the SNCC days. Very much. But it's interesting when you look at the trajectory, the trajectory, so many of those courageous freedom fighters in the 60s who become neoliberal politicians tied into corrupt networks and on the one hand know that they've moved to the center and the right, but are so locked in. You can imagine, you know, how tension written that is, but still it's 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 a way of not really being able to speak the truth to your earlier self. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit more about the proxy war in Ukraine? It's something that I think a lot of people who I usually agree with politically, there's kind of a split on the left, I would say. For some people on the left, the whole role of NATO or the way that the United States, I would say, provoked this. I'm not justifying what Putin did, but I think it was provoked and it was avoidable. Chris Hedges, our friend, said that it was unjustifiable, but totally avoidable and it was provoked. What do you have to say to the people who don't see it that way, who just say it's all Putin, it has nothing to do with what the United States did? And if we want to end the war, that means that Putin has to get out. Yes, yes. I mean, first for myself, I always begin with the suffering. I begin with the suffering of the precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters. And I begin with the fact that the invasion and occupation is indeed a crime against humanity. And in that sense, it is unjustifiable. At the same time, I go on to say that it's a proxy war between two empires, a wounded empire, which is the Russian empire with its own forms of repression and domination, and the mightiest empire in the history of the world, which is the United States. And that, back again, when they are promised, the Russian empire is promised, the American empire will not move one inch. And we do. And we know empires behave like empires. So if there were Russian or Chinese missiles in Mexico and Canada, the U.S. government would blow them into smithereens because empires behave like empires. And that therefore we should not overlook the suffering of the Ukrainian brothers and sisters. We should not overlook the context in which it was an actual provocation pushing a Russian gangster named Putin against the wall Gorbachev would probably do something very similar because he was head of a Russian empire too. And he was completely categorically against moving one inch toward Russia. Now we got 14 former Soviet countries as part of NATO, you see. So that we have to be willing to tell a full-blooded truth so we can be against Russian imperialism, against American imperialism, take responsibility, Putin, in terms of a criminal invasion, but also recognize you were pushed against the wall and yet don't overlook the suffering of the Ukrainian brothers and sisters. And I would add the courageous Russians who are going to jail this very moment, minimum seven years in prison against the war. In that sense, it's very much like your precious mother's boyfriend, Mauro. In the American empire, I'm going to jail. I'm not going to be a part of it. Now, in Russia... Got a whole, what is now 20, 20 some thousand Russians have done that. We don't want to overlook that because we don't want to look at Russia as in some homogeneous entity. You got tremendous struggles going on inside 
of Russia. And we want to stay in contact with those Russian brothers and sisters. So what do I call for? Stop the war, cease fire, sit down with Chinese elites, Turkish elites, Ukrainian elites, U.S. elites, and say, we are going to come up with not just a diplomatic response, but we're going to make sure we minimize any of the suffering because we're headed toward a nuclear exchange. And the media is seemingly impatient. I always remember that press conference where all these journalists in the room were urging a no-fly zone. They were asking for a no-fly zone, basically. And when you have the Pentagon being less belligerent than the news media, that's a scary, scary moment. Isn't that the truth? Two more questions for you, because I know you've been so generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. And definitely would love to have you back. And I want to talk about the Joshua Heschel tradition, because I know he's one of your heroes, and I'm so curious to hear you talk about him. The great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, absolutely. What do you say to the people who are already calling you a spoiler? I have stuff to say to them, but I'll, I'll let you speak for yourself first. Maybe I'll say the stuff I have to say to them after you're off the screen, because you are a religious man. So I want to be polite in front of you. I'm looking at you, Joan Walsh, perhaps, saying you have no business running. No business. Oh, I know, Sister Joan. Oh, she, she comes out swinging, though. Yeah. I'm telling you. What do you have to say to those people who, and also the people who still blame Ralph Nader for George W. Bush? I just find it quite amusing that uh, the Democratic Party could produce such mediocre and milquetoast candidates. Gore could not carry his own congressional district in Tennessee. But no, he doesn't bear responsibility. Brother Ralph. Brother Ralph was one of the towering figures in the history of the country in terms of his commitment to poor and working people. Or same with Sister Jill. Right, Jill Stein. She gets what? 1.07% of the vote with Brother Baraka, but she is responsible for. I mean, you say to yourself, please, though. I mean, it's as if they think these neoliberal candidates own votes. And you're taking my votes. No, you have to earn them. Generate some policies that steal my thunder. Right, yeah. Cut back on your militarism. Where's your anti-poverty? I'm an abolitionist when it comes to poverty. I know you won't be an abolitionist when you cut child poverty in half. I give Brother Biden credit for that. That was very important. During a moment of tremendous crisis, the relief bill cut child poverty in half. The bill expires. Child poverty goes right back up again. You say, please, you know, I have no patience for this kind of indifference and nonchalant attitude toward vulnerable people, no matter where they are or who they are. So in that sense, I would say that democracy means following the anthem of black people, which is live every voice and lift those voices in such a way that you have a robust debate. And there's always important practical reflections, but it can't be so Machiavellian that it cuts off all alternatives right away. And that's what I have very little patience for. And that's just Sister Joan and the whole host of others who have that. Well, it's also an easy way for people not to reflect at all on what the policies were, like you were saying, how their policies failed people. If they can blame you or blame Jill Stein or blame Ralph Nader, or blame Russia, 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 then they don't have to actually look at what they did. And there's a whole consultancy class which can't afford to let anyone look at what they did because that's their bread and butter, and they get a lot of bread and butter for it. That's a very good point. 
And you can imagine, you know, from the vantage point of the mass incarceration regime, from the vantage point of the hood and the barrio or the reservation, or from the vantage point of the West Bank, those policies, Democrats make very little difference. With Republicans, very little difference. Now, there is a difference between a neo-fascist catastrophe and a neoliberal disaster. There's no doubt about that. But it's a difference that in the end doesn't make a big enough difference when we're trying to talk honestly and candidly about the unfairness of the system as a whole and the unfairness of U.S. global hegemony that has little to do with empowering poor and working people and nearly everything to do with profits, 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 and geopolitical power, power, power. What do you think of the current Democratic field? So we have obviously Biden, Marion Williamson, and RFK Jr. And then barring winning the presidential election, what is it that you want your candidacy to achieve? Well, I want to make sure that we create examples in our words and deeds to create a space, an expanding zone to show how the corporate duopoly and the two-party system impedes the empowerment of poor and working people here and abroad. We either win and show that, or if we don't win, our example will be one that is created or broadened the zone and the space for that. I think that that's one thing. Your other question had to do with... The current democratic field. Oh, the current field. Yes, yes. Well, Sister Marion, I was just with her in Cambridge a month or so ago. And, uh, you know, I'm glad her voice is there. And I told her so. We talked about whether I was going to, uh, you know, support her or not, you know. And I, I already was wrestling with this, but I couldn't tell her or what have you. RFK, I've always liked Brother RFK. We worked together his magnificent efforts to deal with environmental racism and so on. But he's already been exposed of not having any spine when it comes to the Israeli occupation. I just, I don't understand what happened. Voices or a lobby or just hanging out with a Jewish brother, Jewish rabbi. Uh, Shmuley, yeah. Can lead you to render invisible the social misery of the West Bank and Gaza. And you're going to say that they've never ever kill babies knowing they were doing it and 551 of them killed between July 8th and August 26th of 2014. More babies killed in that short amount of time nearly than the Ukrainian war. And all of those are war crimes. Russian war crimes, Israeli war crimes, U.S. war crimes in Vietnam and, and Iraq and so forth, you see. So you say, come on, RFK, brother, you're disappointing me. I mean, of course, we're always going to have disagreements and things, but it just shows to me too early a certain spinelessness. Now, some some people are saying, well, he's learning. Okay, that's fine. You know, all of us in the process of learning. But he's had a chance to think this thing through. And he's a brilliant man. You see, so if we have deep disagreements, then we really need to intellectually and morally fight this thing out. But if he's going to tell what I consider lies, killing innocent people and babies, they never thought that they were doing it, never intended. Please. We were born at night, but not last night, RFKJR. If you want to side with those who are indifferent to the suffering of Palestinians, just say so. 
You don't have to lie to us. Just say so. But remember, as Rabbi Heschel says, indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. Let Heschel's words just settle on your soul a little bit. You know, and I don't say that in self-righteousness because all of us can change. All of us can grow and mature. But that's the one issue that hit me so far with Brother RFK. I love what he says about corporate power dominating politics. I love what he says about environment, all hosts of other things. Last thing we want to do is actually my producer, Brad, has a screenshot he wants to share, I think, of a tweet. So I guess this was when The Nation tweeted out, or this is the Joan Walsh article, said, let's be clear, running for president, Cornell West will only take votes away from Biden and help elect a Republican, which was a better version than the first headline, which said that you had no business running for president. So, Brad, do you want to come on and explain what you did here? <laughs> brother Brad. Well, I just made the comment that safely assuming that this narrative that I quote here existed at least 21 years prior to this example, they have been rolling with this expletive omitted out of respect for you, Dr. West, for literally 200 years. And it's an excerpt from a Whig newspaper from 1844, where the Democrats ran a slave owner named James Polk. The Whigs ran a slave owner named Henry Clay. And the Whigs were saying that they were less bad on slavery than the Democrats. And so here they say, for uh, people that are just listening, every vote that is thrown for Mr. Bernie is in fact a vote for Mr. Polk. No matter how nice the conscience, no matter how good the intent, the man who votes for Mr. Bernie, should he view the matter in its right light and true bearing, cannot wash his hands from the guilt of promoting the cause of slavery in the United States. And Bernie was from the Liberty Party. Right. And so, aside from the dated language here, they're essentially making the same nonsense argument, in my view. And that was 21 years minus, so that would have been 179 years ago. Wow, wow. This is fascinating, Brother Brad. It really is. And you also think of the great Frederick Douglass. When Lincoln did win and gave that first inaugural and said he was willing to compromise and allow for the Confederacy to keep in perpetuity the enslavement of black folk. What did Frederick Douglass say? The slave hound from Illinois. That's Abraham Lincoln. He told the truth. But Lincoln changed. He grew. He matured. They began to work together to break the back of the barbaric slavery, you see. And so you can see how history provides certain kind of insights there. That's that's really a source of inspiration, <laughs> Brother Brad. Yeah. 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 And, it just, and it just goes to show how important it is to have that accurate uh, education of history, you know. Absolutely. That seems to be under, under threat nowadays, showing us maybe not in the most flattering light, but you know, those who are ignorant of that history are doomed to repeat it, you know. Isn't that the truth? And you remember John Brown? Absolutely, yeah. He's saying, it looks as if the only way to do this is in blood. I was looking for another way. I can see there's no way I'm willing to take my own sons. And I tell my black brothers and sisters, I say, I love you to death. But you know, John Brown is like Bill Evans on that piano. He ain't no white ally. No, no, no. He's a white brother who loves justice and loves black people enough to die for them. You know, the note he had in his pocket was from Mary Ellen Pleasant from California, who was the first black woman millionaire of San Francisco. She gave him $700,000 in the 1850s. Wow. 
She's known as the godmother of human rights. There's a wonderful park in San Francisco right around the corner from where the great Danny Glover lives. And she's the one who used to say, I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. I'm giving this money to John Brown because he is for real. And he had the note in his pocket when he was executed. So you see that solidarity Sister Katie was talking about? Yeah. Ooh. I could be mistaken, but I think John Brown originally, he was working to be a minister, I think. Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. And let us never forget the great Russell Banks and his novel, Cloud Splitter. Best thing ever written on John Brown. Lays bare all of these different dynamics that you're talking about, because I mean, John also. I mean, he, he, when he killed innocent children, I'm I'm against that. I'm against that kind of right. that kind of treatment. Yeah. But I keep track also of what he saw coming. Exactly. For the American Empire and the split and the seven hundred thousand dead and the possibility of a Confederacy having thoroughgoing slaveocracy for another hundred years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Doctor West, for making the time. No, but thank you. I salute both of you, my sister. And I'm giving you a hug, giving your brother Brad a hug, giving your mother a hug, and stay strong now. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.